Hey everyone, welcome back to the Improv TX Comedy Network. If this is your first time checking out the podcast network, we appreciate it. Please head over to your favorite podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or iTunes, and give the Improv TX Comedy Network a like. And just a reminder, the Improv TX Comedy Network is live on YouTube with all your favorite comedians on the improv stage. All links can be found in the description. And with that, on to the podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Act Out. From open mic to the big stage, comedians tell us how stories were made. I am Duck. Today I have a very special guest. This guy, not only is he a comedian, but he is a doctor. <laughs> that is crazy. A doctor of psychology and neuroscience, correct? Kinda, yeah. It's the same thing. Psychology, the concentration in neuroscience. Not only that, he's an author. He goes across the country doing seminars. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. And, and his comedy is great. And I want to talk about the story, how you went from one to the other, because <laughs> it's super interesting. But we have Dr. Brian King on here today. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing good. It's really good to be here, actually. Yeah, super good to be here. Thank you for having awesome, me. Awesome. So the story kind of plays into this, but how long have you been on comedy? Since oh, 2009? Man. Yeah, I forget exactly what year I started. I think it was around then. Yeah, 2009, 2009. 2010 or something like that. I, I would say over over 10 years I've been doing comedy, you know, minus the pandemic. You know, but I started in San Francisco. Uh, I was living there, working in a field that I didn't quite care for, and I, I had always wanted to be a comedian my whole life. You know, but uh, I kept putting it off. I don't know why. I had different reasons for why I put it off. If I backtrack a little bit. Uh, I'll tell you, I, I went to college in Austin, Texas. Okay. Uh, so I, I'm not from Texas, but I ended up here and I went to college here. And the entire time throughout my college years, I remember wanting to be a stand-up comedian. You know, like just uh, something I really wanted to do. I love comedy. I was a funny person. People would say, hey, you should try comedy. I'm like, yeah, I should. But I was focused. I was as focused as I could be having ADHD, yeah. uh, you know, but I was focused on, on getting out of college, you know. So a comedy club opened up in Austin, the Velveeta Room you know, on 6th Street. We already had Capital City Comedy Club out in what what used to be what far away from town. Now it's because Austin's grown so much. It feels like Capital City is, is still like in the interior. But they opened up and I started hanging out there and the comedians that formed in the early days would encourage me and I'd say, hey, oh, when are you going to get up? When are you going to do some, you know, do a set? And I just didn't feel ready. I didn't have, I didn't have any idea what I would talk about, you know? So you would just hang around the comedy well, club? Well, you know, I was, a, I was a comedy fan. You know, every comedian starts out as a comedy fan. Yeah. You know, so I would hang out and uh, and watch the shows and stuff. But uh, And I would be encouraged, which was kind of nice. The comics I would talk to would encourage me to get on stage. But I wasn't ready. And uh, for some reason, something inside me told me I wasn't ready. And I didn't think I had anything to talk about if I got on stage, you know? I had this misconception that you had to step on stage with all your material already prepared right. and, and, you know, well-written and so forth. But, you know, how do you get to that point? You know, you, you got to get on stage first, you know? Yeah. So that was the thing that was missing for me. So I pushed it. I pushed it and I pushed it. And then I moved a couple times. I ended up getting accepted into graduate school because uh, I got a degree in psychology from UT. And then I went to graduate school and then I got a PhD and then I got a job, you know? And, and so this progression of events in my life just kept postponing my desire to be a comedian, <laughs> right. you know? Uh, but I never left it, you know? I'd always tell people at every stage of my life, I was like, yeah, one of these days I want to try stand-up comedy, you know? And then I got to San Francisco, and I was working at a job I didn't really care for. It was secretly making me kind of miserable. I was really stressed about it. I was working long hours and stuff, and it just wasn't a good fit for the for the environment, you know? And uh, one day I was walking down the street in San Francisco. A friend of mine, after work, we were walking, 
and we pass a sign that says, you know, like stand-up comedy night or open mic night or something like that. And uh, she turns to me. She says, you know, didn't you always say you wanted to be a comedian? I said, yeah. And he's like, well, why don't you give it a shot? I, I couldn't uh, uh, figure out a reason to say no. <laughs> and so uh, I started, I, I got on stage, started performing, and I was immediately hooked. And I, I tell you, the never postpone your dreams. Because as soon as I started doing it, I was kicking myself. I was like, why didn't I do this back in Austin in the Velveeta room when things were ripe? You know, when I was younger and you know what I mean? Like, <sighs> you went that first time. You didn't prepare anything. It was. I think I had a couple of ideas in my head. They were probably pretty bad. And they were probably based on comedy that I had seen on TV. Comedians talk about airlines. You know, mm -hmm. they talk about traveling. They talk about that one room in Winnemucca that they worked and how it was a tough room or whatever. I, you know, that's just, that's typical stuff that you see uh, from stand-up comics. And so I think I went in on that mindset, like trying to, you know, do my version of that stuff. Uh, I don't remember any of it doing very well. I did get some laughs, but I got a solid rush. Uh, and I realized from that point forward, like I, I just wanted to do that you know I wanted to be a comedian and I started focusing heavily on doing comedy you know and, and so I started late best time to be a stand-up comic the best time to start comedy is like when you're 15 16 yes. I mean honestly it really is you know look at Chris Rock look at all these other like people start, yeah, yeah started young you know the second best time is as soon as you can uh, <laughs> you know what I mean like, like like I can't go back in time and tell my, my my teenage self you know look you gotta start writing down these jokes you gotta form you know form an act you gotta you know develop a personality but you know so what I was a little late to the game big deal I mean Roseanne started late you know yeah. uh, Rodney Dangerfield started late These, it's encouraging that anybody can get on a comedy stage and just do it so I decided that uh, I would do it I would put effort into it I loved it I loved it more than anything else I was doing I loved it more than that job I had. I lost that job about a month after becoming a comedian. <laughs> and part of it was because I wanted to do comedy every night. You know, he's like, boss is like, hey, I need you to stay late for this. I'm like, oh, you know what? I've got an open mic that I'm yeah. promised I'm going to get five minutes set and I need to bail, you know? Yeah. And it really was. It was a, it, it, your passions become your commitment. And I was never really committed to what I was doing to support myself at that time. In fact, I really didn't like it. Not that comedy was presenting a better option, but it was definitely <laughs> something I was really passionate about. So I decided to pursue it. And, uh, and I started, yeah, doing it on a regular basis all around San Francisco. And what's great about that is, like you said, you started late and you were already established with a job, a career, doctorate, everything. <clears throat> And it's kind of fun that you're saying, like, this wasn't bringing me joy. I followed the path yep. that they wanted me to follow or I set, but the true path was over here. Right. And that just, that's great. And, yeah, I started late, too. I started comedy when I was 36, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, it's harder. Like, I see these young bucks coming up, and I'm just like, man, all that wasted time. But I was afraid. Yeah. It yeah. was pure fear of getting on the stage. I was going to ask, the first time you went up, were you nervous? I might have been a little nervous. I hadn't had many public speaking appearances in my life. Uh, a couple occasions where I was asked to like give a toast to a crowd, you know, or something like that, or say a few words at a this or a that, and I, I would be over. I, I would get flushed red. The nerves would kick in. But I don't know that I was necessarily prohibitively nervous that first time. I, I kind of went out, and maybe I used the nerves for in my favor. You know, I, I don't remember my first set very well. I didn't have a camera on. I didn't record it. You know, my second set is the one that I have a camera on <laughs> like recording then i just feel like a, like an old pro uh but uh, i don't remember how nervous i was but it was awkward uh it was awkward but you know it was comfortable uh, because i did it at a place
place called the San Francisco Comedy College. Uh, it wasn't like a bar, you know, it wasn't a comedy club. You no, know, pressure's on. You feel pressure when you're at the improv, you yeah. know, you know. But uh, this was a place, this was like a learning uh, experience, you know. There's the other people in the room, they want to learn how to be comedians too. And so, much less pressure. I got on stage, I told a few things here and there, maybe some jokes that I. I had in my head for a long time, and then uh, got three minutes, you know, that first time. I felt great. It was a rush. And, yeah. uh, and I, like I said, I, I started to pursue it and care more about that than other responsibilities that I had. And, and it became my, my source of joy. And then, of course, when I became unemployed, I had to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> you think San Francisco is expensive now. I mean, it was pretty yeah. expensive when I was living there. My major driver, I'll tell you this. This is another life lesson that I tell people all the time. So it was a pursuit your passions obviously if there's something that you're really interested in and you enjoy definitely pursue it the other thing is that obviously we have to pursue certain things out of necessity right like i gotta get a job so i can pay rent you know i gotta pay to live you know i gotta eat but when i made decisions in my life that were based entirely on that you know on that aspect of it like i like i took these jobs solely because i had a lot of obligations financially san francisco is an expensive place to live i have a phd that's an expensive degree to obtain you know i, I didn't get a free PhD, you know, and so I had all these student loans and $50,000. Yeah. And I think my, I think my student loan debt was, uh, my monthly payment for my student loans was maybe comparable to my rent. Uh, You know, so it's like paying two rents every month and I never got ahead on that, you know, because that was just the interest. So I was in a struggling financial position. I realized though that the choices I had made in trying to fit myself into a certain category were not paying off, you know, I, and if they're not going to pay off anyway, I might as well go broke doing something fun. I might as well go bankrupt trying to be a comedian, you know, I didn't go bankrupt they did go broke <laughs> I was say, you've done pretty well actually it actually worked out for you so it eventually you never know where opportunities are going to arise you know so i i started doing comedy and i did it for a couple of years and and i was able to that bare minimum like support myself but i had to you know i had to default on some credit cards you know i, I got it i got you know i got a lot of angry phone calls from yeah. creditors and stuff you know and and uh, that was something that i just had to be okay with you know i didn't do it on purpose like i wasn't trying to you know buck the system or anything but i also needed my mental health more than i needed visa to get their money or you know what i mean so yeah that was a, a difficult period of my life but i was developing my skills on stage my humor my presence you know and, and it wasn't always great you know obviously we go through ups and downs I tried doing comedy as a psychologist, you know, like, hey, everybody, I'm a psychologist. You ever hear the one about the behavioralist and the, you know what I mean? Like, nobody, nobody cares. Uh, that's, you know, people expect that I'm going to do comedy about psychology sometimes, you know, and then they, and then they see me. It's like, all this guy did was uh, dick jokes and talk about, you know. But I always try to make people laugh. And if I can't make you laugh by talking about psychology, then I'm going to make you laugh by talking about something else. I, I only call myself Dr. Brian King on stage as it sort of distinguishes me from Absolutely. other comedians. But it's not like I'm up there talking about psychology or anything that I'm educated in. It took a while. It took a while. But then eventually I got on the radar of of some public speaking bookers and uh, they got a couple phone calls and there was like hey uh, uh, we hear you're a comedian but you also have a PhD is that right and I was like yeah and so well would you like to do a series of seminars you know public speaking gigs and and that was like a real eye-opener for me is like wait a minute I could make a living utilizing my 
degree in psychology, but also trying to make it entertaining. You know, and so what exactly are we talking about? We're talking about doing these seminars that are based in psychology. They need to be full of psychology, but make them funny, make them entertaining, you know, so that people can enjoy the experience as well as, uh, as learn from them. And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. That, yeah. That's fantastic. And so I hooked up with this agency and they started sending me around various cities to try it out. I loved it. I got hooked. And other than my student loan, my most expensive bill was my rent in San Francisco. I had just stumbled into an opportunity to do public speaking gigs on the road. And I told him, I said, look, you know, if you can fill my calendar, if you can keep me engaged enough, I'll live on the road. I'll do as many, I'll do as many gigs as you can give me and I will do them and knock them out. And they agreed to that. They saw it as a nice opportunity because most of the speakers have families, they have homes, they have perhaps maybe somebody like me with a PhD, they have a practice, you know, they're doing something that they have to, you know, they can't really commit fully to. But I was completely open and I love the idea of touring. So I told him that. And now they have somebody who they can book for maybe a lot more speaking gigs than they could book the other people. I gave up my apartment. Uh, I put everything in storage and gave up my apartment and committed to life on the road for a year. And I did that. In doing that, not only did I earn some money while I was traveling, because that's, you know, the whole point, right? I was working, but also I wasn't paying money on rent. And so having been relieved of that, uh, really helped me a great deal yeah. being able to get myself out of that financial situation that I'd gotten into before. It opened up doors. I met people as I would travel. I would do a seminar in a town, and then I would reach out to the local comedy club and, and see if I could get a you know a spot in the show that night or whatever. And and uh, it was it was it was really great. How many years <laughs> in when you started doing that? Uh, how many years into comedy? Yeah. Maybe like one or two, maybe. Wow, uh, that is impressive. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, well, remember, I wasn't being booked because of my comedy. They liked that I was a comedian, but it was, you know, I'm a psychologist, mm-hmm. and so they needed somebody with a PhD. So, so it wasn't like I just went from over miking to touring the country, you know. And it was like that, but it wasn't, you know, they, I wasn't touring the improv. Yeah, but it, it would have taught you so much. That's why I was thinking. That really time did. on stage? It really did. Uh, you know, I consider every speaking gig as an opportunity, as another stage time opportunity, regardless mm-hmm. of what it is. You know, I do a, you know some corporate event or I do this or that or whatever. I mean, it's all public speaking and it all helps you fine tune whatever it is in our brain that helps us communicate and helps us think on the fly and be funny. And uh, in all, of course, the various comedy club exposures that I got as I was traveling to. I mean, I would book as many comedy club gigs or even like one-nighters or do open mics wherever I could, you know. And I managed to really just kind of get around a whole lot. And what's impressive is there's a video online on your YouTube channel, which I think is just Dr. Brian Yeah, Dr. Brian Uh, Definitely go check this out. But you do a set that's seven minutes of crowd work. And then you're like, well, I guess I should probably do a joke. And I, but the crowd work is so good yeah. that you're just layering joke on joke on joke, and you're yeah. hitting on the ladies. Like I was like, well, that's smooth. But it's really, really good in the sense that like I feel like you're very confident on stage. Like you've done it so much, and you're just ready to talk to the crowd. So I I love crowd work. I love to riff. And the problem with having ADD is that it's hard for me to write. And it's hard for me to remember, too. Like, I, I remember I, in, the, in the early days, I would try to write jokes. And I would write, oh, this is a good idea. I'm going to put that down, you know. And then I would come to a stage with a set list, you know. 
it was a struggle to even look at the set list. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I, I would forget that I had it. I would just start rambling and start talking, <laughs> and I would get it out. And finally, I kind of abandoned that. I still write jokes, and I remember them, but that's because I use them repeatedly. You know, like, the more you say something, more it just sticks in your head and comes out. But yeah, I really like riffing. I really like crowd work. And one of the problems with crowd work is that it's very difficult to sell that to club bookers. You know, like, if I... If I were to come in to this club and, you know, audition or whatever, you know, I'd say, yeah, I come up here and I just do a whole, you know, riffing set, you know, I might get a lot of laughs, but can I do that every night with every crowd? You know, that's a, that's a hard thing uh, for a booker. You know, it's nice to have those pre-written jokes in your pocket. So I have a few, you know, things that I usually say. And I also hate my material too. Even, even thinking about those jokes, I'm like, "Ah, I got to write new stuff. That's just every comedian. Every (laughs) comedian hates their material. Like at first you love it. And then you hate it, then you hate it more, then you love it. So you yeah. go back and forth on it always. So. You spend all this time working it out, you know, mm-hmm. as I go to this show, this show, this show, and I'm, I, I'm just refining it and, and modifying it so and getting used to it, you know. And, and then it just sits there in your brain for when you need it. I envy people who can write really well-crafted jokes and, and remember them and tell them and, and get a good response. I have a lot of friends that I envy because that is, in my opinion, a demonstration of a disciplined writing. They can show it to a clip, you know, say, hey, this is my set, these are some jokes, and and that'll get them a writing job on a TV show. Riffing is a little different, yeah. but in the modern age, who knows, uh, more unscripted you know, entertainment is out there, so there might be other opportunities. But Absolutely, I'm and a it's, it's very natural, too, to you. Like, you can tell that you're very comfortable yeah. in it. The key to that, don't care. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, really, it really is. It really is. It's a hard state of mind to get into, but once you can, you know, people talk about meditation, you know, it's a meditative state. Once you can get into that mindset where I'm just going to free flow, you know, trust that whatever comes out of my mouth is something good and something funny, you know, it works. You'll chase the laugh too. If I'm riffing and I'm talking and I'm interacting with people in the audience or whatever, and it's not going anywhere, well then, you know, I, I could go into my material, which I don't like, or I could make a joke about the fact that it's not going anywhere, yeah. you know? And so very self-deprecating. Yeah. I that yeah. Too. yeah. You were very willing to make fun of yourself at any moment. <laughs> with the Zach Sprung thing, with our friend Zach Sprung passed away, and the doctor did a, a moment on the, the stage, an excellent set, actually, uh, you. which you can watch online. It's awesome. I hadn't even talked about it on the podcast with you, but I remembered it because you came up and you're like, I'm his gay lover. Yeah. And I lost it when I was watching <laughs> that. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, is he really saying this? And the yeah. fact that you shaved your hair into a mohawk yeah. and went the whole, you know, you went the whole nine yards with it was awesome. But like, did you make up most of that set? On so, stage? Uh, 100% of that was made up on the set, oh, on wow. stage. Now, here's the thing about that. I had the idea to shave my head like Zach did. Zach had a mohawk, for those people who don't, who don't know him. Zach had a mohawk, and he also had one of those handlebar mustaches, you know. I had just come off of a camping trip, and so my hair was a little bit, you know, a little bit longer than I normally have. So I was going to shave anyway. Like, I usually keep my, my hair and my head pretty low and, and keep my beard pretty low. I asked my family, my wife and my, my kid, is like, we can ask mine if Dad looks a little silly <laughs> for a couple of days, you know. Because I had this idea to do it. And I wasn't real committed to the idea. Uh, it was, but it was literally the only thing that, uh, the only idea that stayed in my head. You know, so I'll think about Zach, right? And I'll think about what he meant to me as a friend and a, and a comedian, and what thoughts come around that. And nothing really was coming up. Like no, nothing was pushing the thought of shaving my head out of my mind. You know, like I was, uh, I was like, what can I say about Zach? You know, what can I talk about Zach? It's like, but well, I could shave my head. You know, and that. So about a couple hours before that show. 
I just did it. I committed to yeah. it. And so uh, I had a little help. My wife and my kid both helped uh, shave me down uh, <laughs> to look like Zach. And now the thing about that, right? So that's a prop. I mean, I have like a, I, I've, I have a prop. I've made my head into a prop, basically. And I did look kind of like Zach because I'm a, I'm a big guy. He was a bigger guy. You know, I had a Bucky shirt on. He wore Bucky yeah. shirts all the time. I come out on stage. I had no idea what it was going to say about the fact that I looked like Zach. But then it just starts coming forth, you know. I Before I got to the gig, I, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe I could say, like, I'm his ex-lover or something like that, or, or that I'm emulating him, or trying to take over his spot in the comedy scene, you know. And I think all of that came out a yeah. little bit, you know. But there was a real, a couple of strokes of genius. When I look at that video, I'm like, oh, man, I don't know where I pulled that out of, but that was brilliant, yeah. you know. And there was a part about me describing us as being gay lovers and i said uh something about like oh uh you know i i called him old zach attack or something like that zach from the back and then yeah and then that that pops into my head as i'm saying zach attack and i'm like oh my god zach from the back that's brilliant you know and then i had another moment where i remembered he was from albuquerque and and there was something that i was watching the movie free guy taika watiti is in it ryan reynolds in it. taika watiti uses this line about albuquerque turkey and that just stuck in my head as albuquerque runs with turkey and i just remember <laughs> thinking of him as the albuquerque turkey and they're like stuffing the albuquerque turkey it was just like 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 as i had that thought on stage i, I mean i'm i'm it just pops in your head out the mouth you yeah. know and and as i as i as i said it i'm like oh my god that is brilliant that is either going to uh, greatly offend his family <laughs> or make everyone in the room just die laughing and thankfully it was the other <laughs> result Dude, you know <laughs> it was such a big laugh too and like and it was also pressure reliever because so many people were sad at the time because it was out of nowhere you know what i mean yeah that we lost him and you know he meant so much to this comedy community yep. here he did so much for everyone you know yeah. i would see him everywhere i have i'd say twin because i'm all too. <laughs> so i'd be what's up twin so it, it was just it was nice to have that because you really relieved the pressure in the yeah. room. I was really affected by his passing too. I mean, I, I, I hope that came across in the, yeah. in, in the set. I mean, it I, I wasn't just, you know, I'm going to make a bunch of jokes. Uh, yeah, I was really affected by it. I was on a camping trip, as I mentioned, and then when I came back to cell service land, you know, whatever, I started seeing these posts. You know, that's how I found out by somebody's posting it on Facebook. And I was like, oh my, I can't, you know, yeah. I reached out to our friend George for confirmation, you know, to see like what had happened. But yeah, I was really affected by it and bothered and i really wished i could have had another opportunity to talk to him it'd been a little while because i'd been out of the state you know on the road and stuff and we had a, a gig actually i had enlisted him to go on a couple of road gigs with me and that was really unfortunate i had to, to recast that but it was weird how much of an absence i felt given that it's not like he lived in my neighborhood. You know what I mean? It's not like it's not like I saw him every day or met for coffee every day or even talked to him on the phone every day. But I really felt a big hole when he left. And so it was cathartic to be able to do that. Yeah, I think it was one of the, the best things I've seen in the last year or two. And for the community to come together in DFW for the comics, just to gather around that, you know, and say, mm -hmm. hey, we're going to pay honor and tribute to our friend. Because, yeah. like, I would see him everywhere, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, he would you just pop in the room, and there he is standing there. So He was hardworking. He ran shows. He produced them. He would 
do everything he could to try to make it. You know, he he was a tough guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's tragic that we lost him. It is. Hey, everyone, it's just stuck jumping in to say thank you so much for checking out the podcast today. If you dig it, please head over to our website at improvtx.com where you can check out our calendar for all the upcoming shows in Addison, Arlington, Houston, and San Antonio. And don't forget to follow our social media, all links in the description. And with that, back to the podcast. I want to kind of talk about how you met him in the mm-hmm. sense of you ended up in DFW yep. from your traveling all around. How did that happen that you ended up here? Well, so I told you I lived on the road for a year, mm-hmm. right, uh, early in my career. After that, and I paid off student loans and I did, you know, everything else that I needed to do. After that, I decided to move to Los Angeles, like settle down. If you're a comedian and you want to make any kind of success in that role, you have to either at some point move to New York or L.A. Right. That's just a thing. Now, I was living in San Francisco when I started. My stuff was in storage. It, L.A. was an easier move. It just made a lot more sense. The weather's better as well. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I moved down to L.A. Got a friend of mine in a room just wanted to move down around the same time, so we decided to be roommates. And, and, uh, and I started living there. And I lived there for about three years, fully intended to give it my all. I really wanted to Zach Sprung that place. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I was hitting all the shows I could. I was doing everything, I, you know, everything I could. However, I still needed to make an income. You know, that, that life doesn't provide an income. So I, of course, I'm not going to say no when the company calls and says, do you want to do these speaking? gigs. And so I started doing these speaking gigs. Well, I, I didn't start. I started before that. But I would continue to do the speaking gigs while I was living in L.A. trying to be an actor or a comedian or whatever it is that I'm going to do. And as I continued to do them, I realized I really just love the road. I love being out there and I love doing these speaking gigs. And in doing them, like it would take me three, maybe four months out of the year, like not in L.A. I would get a, a call or an email from one of my profiles. I'm like, hey, we think you'd be great for this role. Are you able to come in to audition? I'm like, no, I'm in Nebraska, <laughs> you know, doing a thing. And so after a while, I just realized, you know, I'm, I'm not actually giving L.A. what it requires you know, for me, you know, because you got to be present. You have right. to be present to be to be even considered for things. So I was willing to leave L.A. And right around the same time, I met a girl who attended one of my talks, uh, one of my seminars on the road in Florida. And we had gotten to know each other pretty well. And there's a little bit of a mutual attraction there. And she was looking to leave Florida. And she was a, a travel professional as well. We were both talking one day about the difficulties and having a relationship when your income takes you on the road, you know, and it's like, wouldn't it be great to just travel together? And I said, yes, it would be. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, she was like, yeah, I'm on board. And so normally I would travel with a friend to kind of take care of things. And the same company that books me also books like an on-site coordinator, somebody to manage, you know, my events. And so uh, I said, well, you could, you know, take these events. You could be my on-site coordinator and we could just be uh, a couple together. It was a, a very interesting way to approach that kind of decision, but we decided to become partners in the romantic sense as well as every other sense you know so she was living in Colorado at the time I was still in LA she flew to LA helped me pack up my stuff so that we'll go back into storage and then we took a nice long road trip over to Florida where we packed up all of her stuff put it in storage and sold her house I didn't you know own my apartment in LA but she owned a place in Florida, so we sold the house, we, so we packed up all our stuff, and our stuff went into storage, and that's where it remained, uh, actually, until uh, three months ago. We lived on a road for about six, I think, six, seven years. Wow. So. Now, the pandemic happened. 
when the pandemic happened, it canceled everything, right? It canceled all the gigs, canceled the speaking, canceled everything. Now, you know, the thing people don't realize is that when I do these gigs, I get hotel room. It's not like I'm camping in my car or yeah. driving around. Some comedians do. They camp in their car, they couch surf or whatever. But, you know, when those gigs were pulled out from under me, now I, I no longer have, like, like most of my hotel rooms paid for for the year. And so I have to figure out what to do because I also don't have any income. Government says shelter at home. You don't have a home. You know, it, yeah. was, it was tough to figure out. The flip side of that, so it's tough to figure out where to live, but the flip side of that is that because we weren't committed to a place, we could technically live anywhere. We could choose based on whatever circumstances. And so we spent a couple of weeks temporarily, you know, doing what we could do, paying attention to how the pandemic played out and which places look like they'd be more hospitable than others. You know, I knew I didn't want to go back to LA because they were uh, very tight uh, on their, you know, mandates and precautions and restrictions and so forth. I knew I didn't want to go to New York, you know, not only were they also really tight, but all my stuff was kind of in the South, you know. Uh, we settled in Texas because I, you know, I'd lived here before, went to college here. I have a brother that still lives here, you know. I didn't have a, a, a lot of ties to Texas, but I've never lived in Dallas and my brother lives in Dallas. So we, we decided to come to Dallas. Texas was the most open place that we were willing to move to. South Dakota was open because they never closed at all. But I didn't want to move to South Dakota. <laughs> you know, I have no ties there. No reason to move there. Also, Texas was the first place to start doing comedy shows again. Yeah, actually, we were the first club that yeah. started doing shows here. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I think that's we a great thing. No, I think that's a so. great thing. Somebody's got to be first. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's that first person who shows the rest of the world that we can do it still. Or the first person who makes a big mistake, and then, you know, we learn a, a different lesson. Yeah. But thankfully, it, it worked out the other way. Yeah, it know? was crazy. We were open at like 10%, yeah. so it was like... Uh, 30 tables, if even yeah. that, that we could do, you know what I mean? So, so I, I I moved here uh, temporarily. I still considered myself nomadic, so I didn't empty out the storage units or anything like that, you know. We moved here temporarily during the pandemic. Being restless, I was just, I'm going to take advantage of what's going on. And so I saw postings about open mics and stuff. The first open mic I went to in Texas was this bar called uh, Hat Tricks, mm -hmm. uh, which we all are familiar with. And, and I wouldn't say it's a, it was a good open <laughs> mic. <laughs> But uh, so I, I'm seasoned enough in comedy and I've been to enough comedy scenes in the country to know that if you're new in town, you go to an open mic. And regardless of what's there, whether it's an audience or not, the other comedians will, will recognize in you that there's a little bit of experience, you know. I just went in. I signed up for a set. I did a set. After my set, immediately, Zach is coming up to me. <laughs> He's like, hey, man, how long have you been doing comedy? It's obvious you're not like a fresh open micer. And George and other people, you know. And so I, I knew that that was a quick way to establish some connections. And I, and I met those guys, and we became friends and, and worked together a lot throughout the pandemic. Because George I, was putting on shows yeah, left and right. George yeah. and Zach both were putting on a lot of shows. And I would not have survived the pandemic as well as I did if it wasn't for people like Zach and George giving me something to do. I mean, really, I was terribly restless and unproductive during the pandemic. I hadn't had a job in t over 10 years. I mean, touring the country as a comedian slash public speaker, that's not a job. Those are gigs. I brushed off my resume and, and tried to get jobs during the pandemic. And, you know, people look and say, oh, so you've been doing public speaking for 10 years. So well, how does that qualify you to do this, you know, this other thing that you haven't done for 10 years? I found it to be very difficult. Yeah. You know, but thankfully, we made it through. And I do credit it to some extent, you know, the opportunities that, that those guys gave me to, as being it. So once things started opening in the world, I had the opportunity to go back on the road and do what I normally do for income. 
oh man, that was such a relief. <laughs> it, was, it was like, oh my God, I don't know how much more of this I can endure. You know, two years sitting out was a lot. And so I got back on the road and it was not full time. It was like, you know, smaller tour, less attendance, you know, that kind of stuff. I was so grateful to be able to do it. In the time between meeting my, my now wife and then today, I had a kid. Well, you know, she had a kid. I just helped. So, <laughs> so now we have a child, right? And when, when we first had the kid, people were like, you know, hey, aren't you going to settle down somewhere? Where are you going to settle? I was like, no, we don't need to settle down. And we didn't. We took her on the road. She traveled fine. There's no problem. But once she got to school age, I knew that we would have to settle somewhere because there, there's just some aspects of life that uh, that I can't give her as we're moving from place to place all the time. You know, right. I want her to have a little bit of exposure to that. So we started thinking about where do we want to settle? We kind of knew last year would be the last real full touring year with the whole family. We started thinking, where do we want to settle? What feels right? There's a, a list of cities that we could have gone to and really appreciated you know we wanted to go here here whatever and for some reason dallas just kept overpowering those cities like we really liked it here there's a lot of opportunities here it's usually a warm place uh, you know that's one of our requirements you know this freak winter weather <laughs> a couple months ago it's literally like two months ago we settled in we arranged for all of our storage units to be unloaded brought here and now I guess I live here. Yeah. Well, welcome to Dallas. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. That's a really awesome. long way of saying I, I moved to Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> it is necessary. To, if you want to really know why I'm in Dallas, you got to understand those circumstances. Yes. You know, they really do fall into play. So but I want to talk about the podcast that you do. Yeah. It's on the road with Dr. Brian King. How did that get started? You were telling me about the radio. Yeah, so I'm not, first of all, I'm not very creative when it comes to naming things. You know? <laughs> on the road. Why? Because I'm on the road. You yeah, know? there you go. Yeah. When I left San Francisco, some friends of mine who had worked at a radio station, they thought it'd be cool if I submitted content every week or so for a radio segment. And so we just started calling it On the Road with Dr. Brian. You know, as I traveled from place to place and I would interview people and uh, they would play them on the station. And that, that worked out really well. And I think I did that probably maybe a year or so as I would travel it would become sometimes become really hard to find people or, or I'd like I remember I'd go to an open mic or you know I'm at a restaurant right and I'm like oh this is an interesting restaurant well let me interview a waitress you know what I mean like yeah. you know it, it fizzled basically I also uh, didn't like the fact that once it was broadcast on radio it was kind of gone God, you know? yeah Although this station did produce podcasts of their shows. I mean, even then, you know, I think there was a server issue or whatever. So they had to delete old shows, you know, all the time. And so I decided that I wanted to continue it. I liked interacting with people in this forum. I like getting to know people on a more intimate level in a conversation and, and, you know, talk about cool things like art and comedy and whatever. But I don't like podcasts where it's just like a couple of fresh comedians talking about the open mic scene or, or smoking pot, you know, while they're playing video games or whatever and so i just decided like i don't know i don't want to i don't want to be pressured to do podcasts all the time but when i encounter interesting people on the road you know i'll, I'll sit down with them or see if they will chat and so uh, i've been continuing that in some form or another for maybe the past six or seven years and so. it's like 111 episodes or something like that it's a, yeah it's a that's time. including that's including a lot of the old radio segments too you know if somebody were to subscribe to my podcast right now which you should on the road with dr brian king uh, available on spotify everywhere 
If somebody were to subscribe right now and start listening, they would get a nice variety of contemporary episodes, episodes that, you know, we recorded within the last couple of years or so. And then they would hear like an episode that was recorded in 2012, you know, for oh, the wow. radio show, you know. I think I've dug out all of the old episodes that I care to post, but there's a mix, you know. And I label every episode by the city I'm in to add that on the road element, you know. I actually just recorded one in Dallas. And the more episodes I record in Dallas, the more I think I should change the name of the episode because it's not really on the road. If I'm, yeah. uh, but I don't really care. <laughs> no, on the road works. And it's yeah. a great concept to be able to go out there and actually talk to people. I love the fact that you would go out to do your job, but then you would go out to the open mics or has to be on shows. It's, it's very yeah. bold because most people wouldn't do that. They'd be afraid to do that. Well, the yeah. other, okay, if I only toured and did seminars and then went to my hotel or did, you know, and got ready for the next seminar or whatever, that life would probably be just as miserable to me as my job I had in San Francisco. You know, I need outlets. Yeah. I, need, I need creativity. I need to do something more than that. And so it's tiring yeah, sometimes, you know, I'll, because I do these seminars during the day and then I, I drive to the comedy club and I do the comedy show and comedy shows aren't early. You know, like I'll, I'll be on until late and then I get up the next day to do the seminar in a different city. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough schedule. But uh, yeah, if I didn't do it that way, I don't know that I would have continued and, and enjoyed it as much. You know? What advice do you have for up and coming comedians? People who just started out. I don't know. Well, it depends on the nature of the advice. So if you're looking for like career advice, for example, people ask me, how do you make money in comedy? I always tell them, be funny at your day job. You know, like, find a, a way that you can work and be funny because it's very difficult to support yourself as a as telling nothing but jokes. You know, most of the famous comedians we know, like they got most of their income probably from movies and TV shows and other things that they've done. You know, those are related to comedy. But they're not standing in front of an audience every night, you know. Even if you're a headlining comedian, you play a room like this. I don't know what you guys pay your headliners. I mean, assuming it's a like a, a B-list or so, you know, individual who doesn't have a whole lot of creds, doesn't have a pre-existing audience that they bring in, you know, but a, a solidly funny person, you know. Even if that's the case, I mean, two shows Saturday, maybe two shows Friday, you know, a, a Sunday show if you're lucky, a Thursday show if you're lucky. And that's your whole week, you know, that's hard to live on. It's hard to make a family and do other things. So I always tell people if the best way to, to be successful in comedy is to really try other activities, you know, use the stand-up to develop the, the humor and the skills, but also try to incorporate humor in anything else. Like you're a real estate agent. Be the funny real estate agent. Right. You know what I mean? Be the real estate agent that makes everybody laugh and you get recommended all the time because you're so funny. You know what I mean? If you're going to be a teacher or a professor, be the funny professor, you know, be whatever you do, you know, if you can incorporate that. That's a piece of advice I give a lot. As far as starting stand-up comedy or doing stand-up comedy, that's a different bit of advice. The advice I always tell people is remember, never lose sight of this. I see this happen to people all the time. Don't lose sight of the fact that the vast majority of the audience members have no idea who you are. They didn't come specifically to see you and they didn't come specifically to hear your jokes. You know, So if what you're saying to them does not make them laugh, then you have to be willing to do something else. Like You have to be able to twitch directions. You know, I see people all the time who get on stage and they have a whole list of jokes that they want to go through. You know, oh, first joke didn't work. Second joke didn't work. Third joke didn't work. They're starting to get nervous. You know, is that fourth joke going to work? Yeah. No, it's not going to work. <laughs> Do something else. You know what I mean? Anything. And that's where crowd work you know, comes from. That's where riffing comes from. You got to go off the script. You know, if you're killing it with all those jokes, then that's great. You know, but you have, it's always about making the audience laugh. It's not about 
trying out these jokes or reading them with a nervous voice and increasingly a higher level of anxiety, <laughs> uh, you know. And another piece of advice I'll give young comedians, move the mic stand. <laughs> I, every time I see somebody yeah. on stage, you know, they're, they're telling jokes from behind a mic stand. Uh, I'm just, it's, it's something that takes a while for, for people to learn, you know, yeah. but just, just move, it, move it to the side, you know, or move your body to the side or whatever, but move the mic stand. Yeah, and so often you see that too. Yeah. It's like, yeah. oh, why didn't they move it? You yeah. almost want to scream out, but you don't want to ruin it. Right, the exactly. I'm like, hey, yeah. there's a big pole in front yeah. of you. Get that out of there. The last thing I want to talk about is you're an author. Mm -hmm. You have written three books, which is awesome because the one is simply about Bloody Mary. I know. That's crazy. That <laughs> I is, love this, it. That's the weirdest thing. And even when I wrote it, I'm like, this is so weird. <laughs> uh, so The Art of Taking It Easy, How to Cope mm -hmm. with Bears, Traffic, and the Rest of Life Stressors, published 2019, A Filled Guide to the North American Bloody Mary, 2018, yeah. and The Laughing Cure, Emotional and Physical Healing. A Comedian Reveals Why Laughter Really Is the Best Medicine 2016. Yeah. These are kind of autobiographies, too. A little for, bit. Yeah, because yeah, they're bit. kind of a snapshot of your life yeah. at the time while so, you're also educating. Because I use my own self as examples of things, you know. Two of those books came from my background in psychology. I'll let you figure out which one didn't. <laughs> uh, but they, uh, they come from my background in psychology, and they come from subjects that I do seminars on, things like, you know. And so I, I did seminars on the health aspects of humor, how why humor and laughter are so beneficial to us. And, and and, uh, and then, of course, I, I thought, well, you know, this could this could be a great book. And I had an opportunity to, to make it a book. You know, I, I draw from my own experiences. And so it's not intended to be autobiographical, but there is a component of that. The Bloody Mary book is Odd Man Out. And uh, and that really came from social media, my social media presence. So as I would travel, I, would, I started posting pictures of the things I experienced, you know. And, and I was never a huge Bloody Mary fan, but I was in Alaska. Now, if you know anything about Alaska, they have a season, you know, let's call it summer, I guess, uh, where there's nonstop sun, you know, like the sun doesn't set, you know. It's, it's, it's actually really frustrating if you're a new person visiting Alaska because I was just wired awake, yeah. uh, you know, 2 a.m., and I'm still walking around like it's daytime, you know, and... And there's other people in the same boat. Like, we're all, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy. You know, you have to, if you find a hotel room that has blackout curtains and stuff, that kind of helps. But still, it's like you, you don't know when to fall asleep. Your body doesn't know that. So I woke up uh, one morning uh, real super early. And then just, I had nothing else to do. So I just decided to hit the road. You know, I was going to go to Denali National Park. And uh, I was driving overnight, but bright as day out. And I, you know, I pulled into this restaurant to get a little something for breakfast. And they were doing like a Bloody Mary special for, for breakfast, you know. And I ordered a Bloody Mary. And it was served to me with a really interesting garnish, you know, like a, a stick of meats and cheeses and all that stuff. Oh, wow. Compared to the kind of things you see on Instagram today, it was basic you know but it was it was really tasty and i thought the garnish looked interesting so i had a, a crummy smell cell phone at the time i snapped a picture of it and that went up on social media somewhere and wow did it get a lot of attention yeah it was crazy uh, you know i have post lots of things throughout my travel and for some reason the bloody mary was the big winner i found out that bloody marys were kind of popular in alaska and so i I was in Anchorage, and I went to another spot, and they had a really interesting Bloody Mary, so I did that, you know. And as I was traveling, these ideas started hitting me. I was like, you know, maybe I'm tapping into something. Maybe there's this this 
you know, subculture, Bloody Mary connoisseurs, Bloody Mary fans. Wouldn't you know it, around that time, there's a guy in Wisconsin who puts a hamburger on a Bloody Mary. You know, it's like a, a garnish, and, and that starts being really popular. People are sending it to me. They're saying, hey, have you seen this? You know, have you seen this Bloody Mary in Wisconsin? And I met him, by the way, and I've done a, a couple things with him. But around that time, I was like, wow, yeah, this is definitely something that's becoming a thing. Wild Bloody Marys, loaded Bloody Marys, or whatever. So I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go all in on this. And, and I, I started a separate account uh, called uh, Bloody America. The Bloody America developed a, a pretty decent following, actually. Stronger following than I had yeah. <laughs> as a comedian. And I would just travel as I was traveling, seek out unusual Bloody Marys, interesting Bloody Marys, and take pictures of them and write about them and stuff. And I did that for a while. I put the book together because I had some time. You know, there was a while where I wasn't doing much. My my daughter had just been born. My wife took a, a contract, a temporary contract. So we were in uh, Florida for three months while she was working and I was a stay-at-home dad. And so I was, uh, I was like, well, what can I do to stay creative? You know, well, I have all these Bloody Mary pictures from traveling the country. I'm going to write a guidebook. And I asked uh, my friend Emily, who toured with me, a lot during those years and would you want to help me write this and so she said yeah of course and so we i put together all the photos we did some research on the clubs and bars and things and restaurants and we wanted to make sure that everything we published was currently open places close all the time right and as we were doing that research you know, we had about maybe 30 or 40 bloody mary's that we had experienced that are no longer available because the place closed or you know whatever which was pretty sad to realize. And then as we were writing it, we realized, you know, how, how much value is this book going to have if places keep closing, right. you know? But I thought it was cool to put out anyway, and so I, I released it, and, and then I started getting booked in these Bloody Mary festivals all what? over the country. Yeah, That's awesome. There's, there's this whole festival circuit. There's different cities, you know. They, they have a festival here, a festival there, and so I was a judge. I was a Bloody Mary judge, and I would sell my books at those uh, yeah. Bloody Mary festivals. I had one guy come up to me once at a festival in Atlanta, and he's like, yeah, I bought your book in, in North Carolina, and let me tell you, I've been using it as a checklist, and oh, every awesome. single Bloody Mary you've recommended has been great, except for one. And he said, <laughs> I was like, I'm like, well, you know. Yeah, it was kind of cool. There's this interesting subculture that I kind of tapped into, and, and I, I don't drink Bloody Marys anymore. I don't drink anything anymore, really, except the Red Bull, apparently. <laughs> my focus in the last few years of my life has been developing healthier habits you know and so drinking is a, is a big part of that and of course when you when you drink comes with like a big fried chicken sticking out of it you know oh, yeah. that is definitely not healthy and so I, <laughs> I, I cut down on that I actually gave Bloody America to some friends that I met through Bloody Mary activities uh, they're big fans of it and they they were thrilled to take it over and so and they do travel a little bit as well so uh, yeah they, they maintain that legacy for me but yeah, it was a weird thing. And so as I travel, I take pictures. I'm a photographer. So I had I had just mountains. I have so many Bloody Mary pictures in my backlog. And I just, I got to do something, you know? And I had all these ideas to do other photography-related books, but they don't sell well. You know, it's not worth it enough to me to put it together, you know, unless it's just something I really enjoy or am passionate about. Or I had some time on my hands and I needed to be creative, you yeah. know? Yeah, but that's a fun and creative outlet too. Like, yeah, and like yeah. there's a time and place for stuff. Eventually, everything ends, so yeah. that's fine. But I also want to mention the art taking it easy. So yeah. that book is the follow up to the Laughing Cure. It's about managing stress and. The Laughing Cure did really well. It's still out there. I still tour with it, you know. And the Art of Taking It Easy did incredibly well. It's strange to me how well it did. In fact, it's translated into six different languages. The most recent one was 
Korean. And uh, the publisher in Korea sent me a couple copies, and I just got those like a couple weeks ago. And man, it's like it bears no resemblance uh, <laughs> to anything that I produce. You know, like the writing is different, the language is different. I don't know if you pick it up from the front or you pick it up from the back <laughs> or whatever. It just like like there's nothing in there that's recognizable to me anyway. Uh, in the other language versions, like the Polish or the German, you know, at least they use the same alphabet. So I can when I'm flipping through. I see, oh, okay, that's chapter one, that's chapter two, etc. It's really an interesting thing to know that there are people in Korea who are reading my stories about living in Texas and managing stress. And yeah. that's, that's pretty cool, that's though. Pretty yeah, I saw that it was in German, and I was like, yeah. on? Yeah, that's yeah, bad. Yeah. And, my, and I just finished and submitted their manuscript to my next book, uh, which is a follow-up to that one. I mentioned I don't drink Bloody Marys anymore because I'm trying to focus on health. And this next book is all about losing weight. Oh, uh, right on. So I'm a big guy, but I was bigger. When I was traveling and basically living an unrestrained, indulgent lifestyle, uh, I got really big, actually. I got I, I can't even admit it verbally, but it's in, the, <laughs> it's in the book how big I got, you know. And I've lost about 100 pounds. Oh, wow. Um, and I do, uh, I do struggle with that. I lost 100 pounds maybe about a year ago. And, and ever since, I just keep gaining and losing the same 10 pounds. I, I need to, you know, to stay focused. I can say that I lose, lost 150 pounds at some point. But in losing the weight and in having a decently received book previously, then I, I figured there was probably room for one more. And so I pitched it to my publisher. I said, you know, would you like to publish a book about weight loss as a follow-up to stress? I talk about weight in both The Laughing Cure and in The Art of Taking It Easy. So it's consistent, you know, it's on brand, you know. And then I also even in this current upcoming book, I also talk about Bloody Marys and why I drank them and <laughs> why that was a, a major factor for me. So that's going to be book number four, hopefully released in April. April of this year. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Oh, you have another book that you're going to start working on after that? You got any ideas? No, no, I think I'm tapped out. <laughs> And if I do do another book, I really don't want it to be another like psychology slash humor. You know, I mean, I I, I don't I, I want to draw from something else, like mm. maybe uh, I don't know, maybe write some fiction or something. It's a it's still impressive as somebody who's always it. wanted to write a book. Like that's got to be a long, hard process going through the yeah. editing. It's probably the worst part of it. But congratulations. Well, actually, you know, I, I will tell you, uh, like I told comedians, like I talked about earlier, the barrier to getting on stage as a comedian, there is no barrier. You just get on stage and, and do it. If I had known that, I would have started a lot sooner. The barrier to writing a book, same barrier. You just do it. And you just have to force yourself to sit down and write. And that's what it is. You know, if you have an idea, maybe you can spec out an outline. I tell people this all the time because people say, hey, I want to write a book. I want to write a book. And I'm like, well, it's just like doing anything else. You know, you want to be a guitar player, you pick up a guitar. You yeah. want to be a comedian, you get on an open mic. And you want to write a book, you just have to just sit down and, and start putting some words. You know, it's a labor. The editing process is difficult. Uh, I'm lucky because I have a publisher, you know, but you don't have to. I didn't have a publisher for the blood. Mary book and it shows <laughs> <laughs> I mean the conventions thing is so awesome yeah, well, it's pretty cool <laughs> well let's do social media real quick Facebook Instagram Twitter TikTok Dr. Brian King yep. real simple everyone go follow uh, Dr. Brian King thank you thank, thank you for you. being on I appreciate really, it thank really you very much it. and with that said support local comedy in any way shape or form that you can and we will see you on the next one
And there it is. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. If you enjoyed it, please head over to ImprovTX.com to check out all our upcoming shows at the Addison, Arlington, Houston, and San Antonio clubs. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy the other podcasts on the ImprovTX Comedy Network. We have The Act Out. From open mics to the big stage, comedians tell us the story they've made, where I talk to comedians from all over and chat about their journey this far. Also, check out the Black Dog Retro Arcade Podcast. Straight from the arcade, we talk about how our favorite games were made. That's right, we're talking all that video game goodness. And finally, we have Quackin' Up, a storytelling podcast where we pick suggestions from a hat and tell stories based upon them. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Please check out our social media, all links in the description. And with that, we'll see you on the next one.